If you would, open your Bibles to Psalm 42. Psalm 42 uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, This morning, we introduced our theme for 2024, Life Together. Uh, We said the title of it comes from uh, the the title of a 1939 book uh, by Dietrich Bonhoeffer entitled Life Together. And in that book, he talks about the value of community, the value of, of the church, the value of having others and one another that you can share the Christian life with, particularly in and through difficult and tumultuous times. He was uh, working with an underground church in Nazi Germany, and he was trying to stand for the truth in that, and uh, he wrote about how meaningful it is in situations like that to have brethren and to have one. He eventually went to, went to prison, and he longed for the time that he could be with his brethren. He remembered the time that he was with his brethren. And in our context, I think it's important to remember that it's kind of easy for us to gather together, at least for most of us a lot of the time. And, and when you have a gift or a blessing that's just always before you, you can have it day after day after day, you can have it whenever you want it, you kind of forget that it actually is a gift. And it can be easy to forget that it actually is a blessing and that it's something that's meaningful. And, you know, I've, I've heard uh, in... in you know, I understand, uh, especially, you know, being a preacher, I understand the point. But sometimes I hear uh, others and in, in, in preachers and, uh, and, and other Christians talk about how, uh, you know, Christianity is about more than just on Sunday. And, you know, this isn't just a one-day-a-week thing, and we need to be focused on, on what we do the rest of the time and all that. And I, I totally, completely, 100% agree with that. But sometimes, sometimes in our um, zeal to emphasize the rest of the Christian life, I sometimes think we, we tend to downplay the value and the importance of the actual gathering together on Sunday. And uh, that's tragic. It actually is very important when we gather together on the Lord's Day, the day that he was risen from the dead, and we as a family unite together, you unite around a meal, we unite in song, we unite in prayer. It shows the love of God is still alive and well in this world and in our hearts and towards him and towards one another. And that's a powerful statement. And, and so, you know, there's, there are, there's more to do than just go to church on Sunday, and I, and I get that. But if you have a, a, a somewhat um, a view of worship or of church as though it's not one of the most important things in your life, or if it's not the most important part of your week, then I think your theology of, of worship needs to be refined a little bit. Uh, it should be something that you think about daily. It should be something that you, you map your calendar around that rather than trying to fit that somewhere into your busy calendar. It matters. And if you're a Christian, it should be at the forefront of your priorities, gathering together with the people of God. And so uh, as, as, you, as I read that book and as I read through the New Testament and as I just experience life as a Christian, I can't help but think it would be a wonderful thing to spend a year talking about our life together and what that means for us and the value uh, that that could have for each one of us. In uh, Life Together, the book, um, he mentions those who don't get to participate in the visual or physical fellowship of the church. Uh, whether it's those who are uh, sick, those who are uh, in prison, those who are exiled, those who are preaching the gospel in foreign lands, or a couple of the examples that he gives, who don't have that church family gathered together around them. And as I thought about that, 
the reason we started off this lesson by turning to Psalm 42 is because Psalm 42 is written by someone in a similar situation. Uh, he, it's not, he's not thinking about the church on Sunday, but he is thinking about the people of Israel who he used to worship with on the way to the temple. He used to lead in the, the temple worship, but now he finds himself as an exile. And we're not told exactly which exile uh, this one is. We don't know if it's Babylonian exile. We don't know if it is uh, some other conflict that has left him stranded elsewhere. But he's someone who is now surrounded by enemies. He's in a foreign land. He is exiled away from home. And his tears are the only thing he can eat and drink as he remembers his life back home, as he remembers worship with God, as he remembers being with the multitude. In Psalm 42 and 43, uh, we're going to see... The, the, hearts, the heart of someone being poured out who longs to be with his family again, with his fellow worshipers again, with his brethren and his neighbors, with Israel again, as he spends life in exile. The reason I'm saying Psalm 42 and 43 is because this was a psalm that it seems to originally have been one psalm and now is kind of broken up into two. There are a couple of psalms like that. Uh, and, and so because of that, you'll actually sometimes see that the psalms are numbered differently when you look at, uh, if you were to pick up a Bible uh, from another country in another language, their number of psalms might or might not line up exactly with ours. Uh, and so, uh, and, and this, that's true with the Septuagint also. If uh, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, and if you're reading the psalms from like a Hebrew uh, Masoretic manuscript, and you're comparing that psalm with the Greek Septuagint, you sometimes have to adjust because this is Psalm 9, but this is Psalm 10. You know, it's like, it, it, but it's the same Psalm. But so anyway, there are some Psalms like that that, that were originally one and have been broken up into two. Uh, and this seems to be one of those Psalms. And uh, Psalm 42, one of the ways you can tell is because, well, for one thing, the context is, is the same uh, throughout the whole thing. Uh, another thing you can tell is if you look up uh, right, at the, right before verse 1 in your Bibles, it might say something like book two, which is interesting. Well, well, do you see the word book two there in your Bible? Yeah. So, uh, so the Psalms are actually five different books. There's five books of the Psalms. Uh, and uh, we always just think of the Psalms as a book. But if you read through them, there's five different sections where you're told which book you're now in. And so Psalm 1 through 41 is book one. Psalm 42 through 72 is book two. Psalm 73 through 89 is book three. Psalm 90 through 106 is book four. And then Psalm 107 through the end is the fifth book of the Psalms. And so uh, we say there's 66 books in the Bible. There's 71 books in the Bible. No, uh, no there's, there's 66 books. Did I do my math right? Anyway. Um, there's, there is, uh, uh, you know, there's 66 books in the Bible, but the Psalms, they are broken up and divided like that. Um, but uh, when you look right below that where it says Psalm 42, mine says, for the choir director, a maskil of the sons of Korah. Right, do you have something like that written there? Yeah, so a lot of the Psalms have a heading like that. Uh, it'll give a heading that gives some description of either who wrote it or uh, in what situation it was written or how it's supposed to be played in the temple or uh, what type of song that it is. If you look before Psalm 43, though, 
uh, it doesn't have one of those notations. Uh, so you, this is where it gets a little bit tricky, because mine does say prayer of deliverance. But that's just a little editor's note from the editor of the Bible. That's not actually in the manuscripts. Uh, so uh, in a lot of the Psalms, there's a heading that's actually in our ancient manuscripts that, uh, that is put in there. But then there's also some words from like a translator who, who helps you out with the context. So Psalm 42 and 43 only has one heading. So the heading that's actually in the manuscript is at the beginning of Psalm 42, and there's nothing before Psalm 43, which is also a hint that they kind of go with each other. Um, the context is, remains the same throughout. So if you just read it through from one to the other, uh, he's discussing the same thing. It's still written by an exile who's longing to be back home. And then finally, um, look at verse 5 of Psalm 42. So this is, uh, this is to me, the, the, the key point as to how you can tell it's one psalm. Um, the first couple of verses, he's longing to be back with God, and he's remembering the times that he was with the people worshiping God, and he's in despair, and he's pouring out his soul. But then he stops in verse 5, and he has a little conversation with himself. He, has, he, he picks himself up, and he reminds himself of what matters most. He says, why are you in despair, O my soul? So he's talking to his own soul here. He's like, soul, why are you in despair right now? Why are you so frustrated and heartbroken and, 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 uh, and, and worried? And why have you become disturbed within me? It's like, soul, why are you so disturbed? And then he tells his soul in verse 5, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. So what he says is, soul, wait a minute, you're going in a dark place. You're going in a bad direction. I'm, I'm getting more and more uh, filled with grief, and I'm more and more troubled. Stop. Why are you in despair, and why are you disturbed? Hope in God. Even through the darkness and even in the, in the trouble, hope in God, for I shall again praise him. And he tells his soul that. All right, then you get to verse 6, and he goes back to describing his despair. Notice he says, oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. And therefore, and he kind of goes through and he starts talking about how dark things have become until you get to verse 11. And then notice verse 11. He stops and he starts talking to his soul again. And it's going to sound very familiar. He says, why are you in despair, oh my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? That's the same thing he just said in verse 5. He's saying it again right here. Um, and then he says, hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of my countenance and my God. And so he goes a couple of verses, and then he, he stops and he says, wait a minute, soul, why are you in despair? Hope in God, trust in God, you'll be with God again. And then he goes a few more verses, and he's just troubled. Then he says, no, no, why are you in despair, O oh my soul? Hope in God, trust in God. And then you get to Psalm 43. And he again uh, starts talking about God. He, he starts uh, calling for God to vindicate him and to, to help him in the midst of these ungodly people in this pagan nation. And he does this all the way until you get to verse 5, where you look what he says. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. And so he again stops himself, and that's how the psalm ends. It ends with him talking to himself again and telling himself, hope in God through this. And so there's three times, this would basically, if you're reading this like a song, this would be like the chorus, you know, that gets repeated uh, as, as the song goes on. You have your, your verses and then the chorus and then the verses and then the chorus. Um, and so right here, he is stopping himself and he's telling himself to hope in God. God, to trust in God because the, the exile and the pain and the loneliness and the sorrow, it won't last. God will redeem me. God will vindicate me. I will be with my people again. And so that's kind of the flow of the psalm. And you can see how Psalm 42 and 43, it just flows right through it. Uh, the chorus is repeated, you know, in each one of them. So what I want to do now is kind of read through the psalm. And as we do so, 
you know, it's, when you're reading the Psalms, uh, I think it is helpful a lot of times to read them as prayers, to be able to even pray some of the words of the Psalms, and to read them to see how they, they, they fit in with your own life. But there are times you'll read the Psalms, and you'll note that, yeah, I don't feel the way that he feels right now, or I don't feel the way that the psalmist is writing. Sometimes the psalmists say things that I don't even feel comfortable saying. You know, the, the psalms are pretty raw and pretty honest a lot of times. They don't, they don't shy away from the depths of, of anger and hatred and all of human emotions, the good and the bad. The psalms have it all there. The psalms are an accurate portrayal of the highs and the lows of the human life. And, uh, and so sometimes it's like if you're on a high and you're reading a low, it doesn't seem to fit. Or if you're on a low and you're reading a high, it doesn't quite seem to fit. And that's where it becomes really, really important to remember that this psalm is a prayer, but it's not necessarily my prayer, but it's a prayer of someone else. And it's a way to remember that we are a community, that the, the someone else matters too. And it's a way of me to, rem, it's a way to remind me that others are going through very different circumstances than I am, and to offer prayer for others, to, to begin to see the experiences of others. So when I read through this psalm, uh, and I, I'm not in exile, you know, I'm not away uh, in a foreign land longing to be back in Jerusalem, I'm not in his exact situation. Um, in fact, when it comes to the people of God, I, I was with the church this morning. I went to someone's house this afternoon and spent time with uh, some people from church there. And then uh, I'm here again tonight. And it's like, I've, I've seen enough of you guys, you know? <laughs> like, like we see each other. Like I, I see the church a lot. I, I, I show up at the, the church like daily and I see people from church. And I, you know, like church folk are a normal part of my life. This is not my song right now. This is not the situation that I'm in. But I know that if I were to pull out the bulletin and look at some of the people who are listed there on the homebound or some of those who are in, uh, in the hospital or some of those who are uh, in nursing homes, I know that this might be their psalm right now. And I, I know that when I read it with them in mind, it might encourage or challenge me, hey, if they can't come here, maybe I can go there. And it reminds me that those people who are going through those difficulties they still matter very much. And it's a way of, of, I guess, reading the Psalms to look outward instead of just inward. And so remember that as we uh, go through this Psalm as well. Verse 1, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? It's like a deer that is thirsty and longing for water, running through the woods, looking for a stream, looking for some source of, of, of water to be hydrated. He says, that deer that's in that situation, that's what I feel like right now. Only I'm not thirsting for a stream or a river or a pond. I'm thirsting for God. God is who I feel distant from right now. Um, one of the, the things that, that might um, cause us some distance from the heart of the psalmist is the way we think about worship and location specifically. What I mean is, in ancient Israel, worship had a lot to do with where you were. 
Uh, you know, worship was location specific. When you were in Jerusalem, when you were at the temple, you were very close to God there. The, that was the house of God. People would, would travel to that place to worship God. And that was, it, it mattered very much that you were there. If you were far from the temple, then, then you were farther from the presence of God, at least in some sense. I recognize God as omnipresent, but when you read through the Old Testament, very much there's an emphasis that God is more in some places than other places. The, the the burning bush, you had to take your, your shoes off because you were on holy ground because you were right there near the very presence of God. That's a little bit different than just when you're walking somewhere else. Uh, the temple was one of those places where the presence of God in a special and unique way resided. And as he's in a foreign land, he is very far from the presence of God. We don't always think of God that way. You know, do you, do you remember the little controversy in John 4 where Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman? And she brings up, you know, the Samaritans, we believe that, that God is here in Mount Gerizim. You know, we worship in this temple, but you guys worship there in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, an hour is coming where it doesn't really matter where you worship. But what matters is that you worship God in spirit and in truth. And, and so we kind of have the mindset that, yeah, we know that there's a church building, but a church building isn't even an essential to Christian worship. We could worship together at a park. We could worship together at someone's house. We could worship in an open field. We could worship on a mountaintop. If we were in a persecuted place, we could worship, you know, in a, in a cave. You know, it's like we could find a place to worship that no one knows about. Where you are doesn't matter. You can worship God just as much in Maryville, Tennessee, as you can in Tirana, Albania, or you can anywhere else in the world. Like, where you are isn't the, what matters. That you're worshiping God is what matters. That's not the way ancient Israelites tended to think about worship. Yes, they could worship God in other places, but some aspects of worship they could only do at the temple. Like, for example, um, the, the, when, the, when it came to offering sacri man a full sacrifice, they were supposed to bring that to a priest who was at the temple. When it came to uh, the instruments that were used in worship, that was a temple-specific form of worship. Uh, there, uh, there were a lot of things that were supposed to be done specifically at the temple. When they developed synagogues, they did worship God at synagogues, but the worship they offered was not the same as the Levitical temple worship. They would read scripture, they would uh, offer prayers, um, they, would, they, uh, they might sing, but that would not be done with the animal sacrifices, with the burning of incense, with the Levitical priests in their robes, and with the instruments of music, and all of the stuff that took place at the temple. So what he's longing for here is actual temple worship. That's what he's distant from, and that's where he felt closest to God. And that's why he, like a, like a deer that's thirsting for water, he's thirsting to be back and to worship God in that way again. When he says in verse 2, when shall I come and appear before God? He's not talking about like judgment day, like at the pearly gates in heaven or something. And he's not saying, well, God's omnipresent. So he's, I'm, a, I'm before God right now. No, he's specifically talking about the temple. Like, when can I go back home? When can I go back to Jerusalem and go back to the temple and be there again? In verse three, he describes his current circumstances. My tears have been my food day and night, while all day long, they say, well, they say to me all day long, where is your God? So two things uh, are revealed right here in this passage. One, he's surrounded by enemies who do not share his faith in God, and they're actually mocking him. 
Oh, where is your God now? You think your God is the greatest God in, in all the world? Where is your food? The only thing you have to eat is tears. You know, the only, where, where's your home? You've been brought captive. You're not, your God isn't even strong enough to save you from us. Where is your God now? And that's the type of mocking that they're doing. Uh, it's, you know, it, that, was, that was common in uh, the ancient world. When, when Babylon defeats Jerusalem, what do the Babylonians think about their God as opposed to the God of Jerusalem and the God of Israel? Well, their gods are greater. Their gods are more mighty. Um, one of the ways that you demonstrated the power of your God was by overpowering other people and their gods. And so he's being mocked here, but not only is he being mocked, God is being mocked. And he has to just deal with that because he's, he's unable to persuade them or convince them otherwise. He weeps. That's the only thing he has. Now, he doesn't seem to be, have a lot of food. He's hungry. He's alone. He's being mocked. And he's longing to be with God again. Verse 4, he says, These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the throng or with the multitude and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. So one of the, one of the pains of exile are the memories that linger with you. It's one of the joys is being able to remember the good times. But there's also a sense in which that's one of the, the pains as well. It's because it's like I enjoyed those and I have those memories that can give me joy that I had the experiences. But I also, those memories are a haunting realization that I'm no longer there and I'm no longer in that situation. And I think that's true with a lot of our, our memories of good things and our memories of, of something that used to be maybe so meaningful to us or so enjoyable. We can enjoy the memories and smile upon the memories, but then we can also sometimes be saddened by the memories, knowing that that's not the way things are anymore. And I think as he looks back, he, he remembers the joy. He remembers the thanksgiving. He remembers the festivals. He remembers the multitude of people. He remembers the presence of God. And yet now he knows he's so far away from that. And so he pours out his soul about this pain, and he remembers the depths of sorrow and despair and loneliness that he's in. And then verse 5, he stops. He says, wait a minute. If I keep going down this rabbit hole, I'm going to end up in a dark place I don't want to be, so stop. And wait a minute. Why are you in despair, oh my soul? Like, soul, why are you so troubled? Why are you so disturbed within me? Hope in God for I shall again praise him. Put your trust and put your hope in God because you will praise him again. Now that is something that you know, sometimes I think it is, it is important to have those types of hopes. And you know what, I think his hope is very real that he thinks he will go back to Jerusalem. But there are circumstances that we're in where these words, you know, maybe you won't go back to Jerusalem. Maybe you'll die in a foreign land. People did that. Maybe, maybe one of the ways that you want this hope to be realized uh, is not the way that it's going to be realized. But I do think if you're a Christian, no matter where you are, if you're longing to be with the people of God again, you can say these words, I shall again praise him. I shall again be with him. Because as Christians, we believe in the resurrection based on the resurrection of Jesus. And so no matter where you are or what difficult time you're in, there is always the hope and the reality that you will again be with God and with his people praising him again. And so that's, I think, an important way to remember. Now, is that what he's thinking of? I don't know. But as Christians, that's a realization that we have. And that's something that we can take hope and take uh, a promise and joy in. So then verse 6 after telling himself, hope in God, trust in God, you'll get through this, he then starts back to talk about some of the struggles. He says in verse 6, 
Oh, my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and the peaks of Hermon and Mount Mizar. So here what he's doing is he's, he's remembering again. You know, a lot of this deals with his memories of the way things were. But he's remembering, he had remembered the worship in the temple. Now he's just remembering his homeland itself. He's remembering the tall mountains of Hermon and the small mountains of Mizar. He's remembering the Jordan. He's remembering the valleys. He's remembering the landscape itself. And as he does so, his, his soul is in despair because those aren't, he's seeing nothing but foreign sights now. You know, as you, it, you can get homesickness when you're farther away from home, and you can get, uh, you can get to where just even the, the land and the buildings, you know, whatever it is you're seeing, the language that you're hearing, if you're in a foreign land, you can miss just something familiar. Uh, you know, I, I know people who have uh, been on mission trips for a lengthy period of time, and then uh, they came back and they just wanted a glass of milk because, you know, like milk is done a little bit differently here. Uh, you know, it's more common here. And, uh, and there are things like that, that that people just long for something that reminded them of home. And I think that's what he's thinking about here as he, as he remembers the landscapes and the mountains. But then he says in verse 7, Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls, and all your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. Uh, as he considers where he is now, he feels like he's drowning, just being beaten and beaten by waves. Uh, this, is a, this is imagery used regularly in the Psalms about the chaos of life. It's like the waters that you have no control over, and you're stuck underneath, and you're trying to grasp for air, and you're trying to get to the top. But every time you think you're at the top, another wave crashes down upon you. And life can feel like that sometimes. And as he considers this, he considers these are the, the waves of God that are crashing down upon me. And so verse 9 He's, he knows that God is good, or verse 8, I mean, he knows God is good, and he says, the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and his song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. So he's hopes for the loving kindness of God in the day, and at nighttime when he's alone and in the darkness, what he has with him is the prayer and the song of God. He can go to God in prayer, and he can go to God in song, even if by himself, and even if alone, and even with tears in his eyes. But then he tells us what his words are in verse 9, where he says, I will say to God, and then notice the, the, the painful words that come, I will say to God, my rock. He calls God his rock right here. So it's like it's an, it's an expression of trust in the solid and unmovability of God, that God is a sustainer, God is there, God is present, he's sturdy, he's a rock. And yet he says to his rock, why have you forgotten me? And why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? It's like, God, you're my rock. You're the one with loving kindness in the daytime. You're the one I think about, sing to, and pray to at nighttime. You're, you are the one who should always be there and ever be present. And yet, it sure feels like you have forgotten me right now because I'm alone and I don't want to be. Uh, why do I go on mourning and in sorrow and in weeping? Because I'm consistently and constantly oppressed by my enemies. He says in verse 10, as a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? That's the same question they were asking earlier in verse 3. They say to me all day long, where is your God? Well, here they surround him, they, they mock him, and the mockery of his enemies is like a shattering of his bones when they say to him, where is your God? And he wants to give them an answer. But back in verse 9, 
when he talks to God, he says, why have you forgotten me? He doesn't feel like he has the answer that he wants to give them. He, it, he, it does feel like he's been abandoned. It does feel like he's alone, and he doesn't want to feel that way. So what does he do? He recognizes that if he keeps going down this pattern of thought, he's going to end up in a place he doesn't want to be. He could end up growing farther and farther away from God in his doubt and in his distress. And so verse 11, he stops, and he starts talking to himself again. Wait a minute. Why are you in despair, O oh my soul? Wait, soul, why are you so troubled right now? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of my countenance and my God. God will be my help. God will be present. I hope in God. He, ha he is your rock. He has not abandoned you. It feels like he's forgotten you. I'm mourning because of the oppression of my enemies, but keep trusting in God because ultimately he's your only hope in those dark nights of the soul. In those dark nights where it seems like nothing is going right, God is your only hope, and if we turn from God in the moment that we're drowning, we give up on the only ultimate source of salvation that we have. Like in, in Matthew 14, when Peter gets out of the boat and he walks on the water with Jesus, it's a wonderful, powerful demonstration of faith, and it's something that, you know, way to go, Peter. You know, that's something that no other disciple did. That was fantastic. But when he's on the water, and he takes his eyes off of Jesus as he begins to look at the wind and the waves and the reality around him and the, the, the fact that he's on water in the midst of a dark storm, I think, catches up to him. He begins to sink. And I think sometimes in our lives we can find ourselves sinking. And I think this psalmist right now, he even, has even already used water crashing over him as an illustration. He finds himself sinking in despair and in hopelessness. But what Peter does as he begins to sink is he doesn't think, oh, I'm a failure for sinking, I should die now. Or he doesn't say, oh, my only hope is to overpower the waves and swim to the top and get back to the boat. No, what he says immediately is, Lord, save me. It's like he gets out of the boat because of Jesus. He sinks, but then as he's sinking, it's not his failure that he focuses on, it's Jesus. And guess what? He is pulled from the water. He is saved because of that. You're going to feel that sinking feeling in your life. And what you do in that sinking feeling, sometimes the temptation, because that feeling, it feels like maybe God doesn't love us, or it feels like maybe our, our, it's our own sins that are our problem, or our mind can do a lot of things that want to pull us farther away from God. I think Satan likes to use moments like that to make it harder on you to call out to God when the thing you need to do more than anything else is call out to God. So as Peter says, Lord, save me, I think that's what the psalmist is doing in verse 11, where he says, stop, wait a minute, no, I'm not going to go that way. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. I'm not going to get further from him. I'm not going to give up on him. I'm not going to forget him or fail him. I'm going to trust in God, even in the darkness, I'm going to trust. So then in verse 1 of 43, he begins to plead to God himself, Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation, and deliver me from the deceitful of an unjust men. He feels like he's surrounded by an ungodly nation, by deceitful and unjust men. There's no justice there. There's no honesty there. And he knows that if there's one source of honesty and truth and justice, it's God. And so if there's anyone he can hope on right now, it is God. And so he calls for God, his one source of hope, to vindicate him and to help him through these trials and these struggles. In verse 2, he says, for you are the God of my strength. But then he says, why have you rejected me? 
And why do I go on mourning? Because of the oppression of my enemies. That's the same, that's the same line he said back up in uh, verse 9 of 42. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning? Because of the oppression of my enemies. Well, in chapter 43 and verse 2, he says, I will say to God, my strength. You know, instead of the word rock, he says strength. But I think it's a very similar idea. Why have you forgotten me? And why do I go on mourning? So, so he begins to have this despair again. But then... In verse 3 through the rest of it, he begins to petition God and hope in God. And he ends on a much more positive note. He, he gets specific with what he wants God to do. He says in verse 3, Oh, send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. And let them bring me to your holy hill. The holy hill would be Mount Zion. That's the hill in Jerusalem that, uh, that the temple was built on. And to your dwelling places. God's dwelling place is the temple. That, that's where God uh, dwells in ancient Israel. Then I will go to the altar of God. The altar of God is right there at the, at the, the temple. That's, this is all temple stuff. Uh, he says, then I will go to the uh, altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. So he says, to your holy hill to your dwelling places, to your altar. It's like the hill, you can see it in the distance. And then you get a little bit closer and you see the actual dwelling places of the temple. Then you actually get to the temple and you see the altar there. And then he says in verse four, not just to the altar, but to God, my exceeding joy. So with each of, each of these new expressions, he's moved from seeing the hill to the dwelling place, to the altar, to God. And he's praying, God, let me get close to you again like that. And when that happens, verse four, then I will go to God, to God my exceeding joy, and upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. And so he says, when, when you bring me back, I will worship again, and I will worship you, O God, and then the expression, my God. It's not just that you are a God or the God, but you are personally my God as well. And as he says those words, he says in verse 5, why are you in despair? O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. And he ends with this final call to hope in God again. So as I read this psalm, I see someone who his life has taken an unexpected turn. And as he, he remembers what his life had been, it fills him with sorrow. He remembers that he used to be uh, with people in the multitude, in the throng, in the very presence of God. He used to lead in the worship of God. He used to be closer to God. He used to be in his homeland where he saw his mountains and his hills. And he's calling upon God now because he finds himself alone. He finds himself with tears. He finds himself in darkness. He finds himself drowning. He finds himself being mocked and ridiculed by enemies. So like his circumstances have completely changed. But the one source of hope that he has through this is for God to remember him, for God to vindicate him, for God to, to, uh, to be a source of hope that he can always count on. And as I think about that, it, it makes me think of those who might be distant from us, uh, whether they are uh, homebound or whether they are in a distant land, wherever they may be, those who are distant, who are in need. In what ways can we reach out to them? You know, one of the ways I think that God does comfort people is through his people. One of the ways that God does make an impact in the world is through us. One of the ways that Jesus continues to work in this world is through his body, which is still in this world, which is the church. And so in what ways can we, as representatives of God himself, help people who are going through 
struggles of loneliness and difficulty and turmoil, well, one thing we can do is we can be present. One thing we can do is we can reach out. One thing we can do is we can pray for them and let them know that we pray for them. Uh, I, do, I think it's wonderful to pray for people, um, and you don't want to sound like, you know, like bragging about, like talking about it, but, but don't let the fear of that keep you from telling someone that you prayed for them because it's valuable for someone to know that they have a community who loves them and spends their own time in thought and in prayer about me. Let people know that you're praying for them and do so regularly. Pray with them. Hold someone's hand and say a prayer with them to let them know uh, that you love them and uh, that you're concerned about what they are concerned about. And uh, all of those, I think, are ways that we can help the exiles remember that they're part of a community that loves them and remember that they're part of something bigger than themselves and remember that God still loves them and that there still is hope and there still is a future. And if there's anyone here tonight who uh, would like to grow closer to God, maybe in your faith and in your life you have found yourself feeling exiled from God, well, the path home is available. Uh, there is a highway through the desert back to our God, and he's inviting you to come. Uh, and if there's anyone here who would like to name Jesus as Lord of your life, having your sins washed away in baptism and living for him from this point forward, or having the prayers of the church uh, to help you overcome some struggles and difficulties of life, please let it be known and sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.